0: So many people remember exactly where they were on 9-11 and what they were doing. Richard Thomas was in Cambridge, Massachusetts and says he was in a daze when he pushed through the door of Tower Records, of all places, Tower Records, and found Bob Dylan's newest album, Love and Theft, that had been released that very day. He must have clutched the album closely as he made his way back out into the world, perhaps hoping he might find some solace listening to these fresh tracks. What he found was a tune titled Lonesome Day Blues. When I listened to the album, I heard the Roman poet Virgil, loud and clear, in these words by Bob Dylan. I'm going to spare the defeated. I'm going to speak to the crowd. I'm going to spare the defeated boys. I'm going to speak to the crowd. I'm going to teach peace to the conquered. I'm going to tame the proud. The idiom, rhymes, and music of these lines belonged to Dylan, but the thought and diction rearranged by Dylan came from Rome's greatest poet, Virgil. Dr. Thomas is professor of the classics at Harvard University, and he's gone on to teach a regular course on Dylan and his artistry. The themes comprehended by Dylan's songbook are as boundless as those of the folk and literary cultures from which his art emerged. And these are the themes of the seminar, music and social justice, war and the human response to war, love and death, faith and religion, song as compensation for the realities of mortality. I place particular emphasis on trying to have the students see Dylan's art as art and to attend to his songs, not as autobiography, but as the product of a highly creative imagination that constantly manipulates and transforms linear time and the details of any actual life experience much of which he has carefully concealed from the very beginning. And Dr. Thomas makes sure his students don't miss the symbolism of the Nobel ceremony in Stockholm when it did finally take place with Dylan there in person. Thomas writes... On April 1, 2017, Bob Dylan, still on the road at the age of 75, started a 28-concert European tour with the first of two performances at the Stockholm waterfront. Earlier in the day, he had met privately with 12 of the 18 members of the Swedish Academy to receive his diploma and gold medal for the 2016 Nobel Prize in Literature, which had first been announced five months before, for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. Sara Donius, Academy member and its permanent secretary, reported the essentials of the private medal ceremony on her blog. Spirits were high, champagne was had, quite a bit of time was spent looking closely at the gold medal, in particular the beautifully crafted back an image of a young man sitting under a laurel tree who listens to the muse taken from Virgil's Aeneid the inscription is loosely translated as and they who bettered life on earth by their newly found mastery Donius's evasive quite a bit of time was spent looking closely at the gold medal fools nobody everyone else in that room had seen the medal many times before Dylan was clearly the one who must have been studying it most carefully, an artist who notices everything in the world around him, and one with a connection to Virgil's work. Dylan would have been fascinated by the image on the reverse side of the medal designed by a Swedish engraver in 1902. The man on the medal is not just any young man. He would seem to represent the poet Virgil, one of the shepherd singers of his poem Eclogue I, meditating the woodland muse as he sings in the shade of a tree. The singer on the metal is likewise looking up at the muse as she plays the seven-stringed lyre, or kithara, cithera, as the Greeks and Romans called it, the word that gives us guitar. Beside him is depicted an ancient box with three papyrus rolls, the young man's supply of writing materials. Dylan knew just what he was looking at, Having integrated Homeric singing and lyre playing from the Odyssey into his 2012 song, Early Roman Kings.
1: Are the early Roman kings in their shark skin suits?
0: In early Roman Kings, we find the line, Take down my fiddle, tune up my strings, which Dylan would perform the next day in Stockholm. Like the image, the words engraved around the medal's rim are also Virgil's. In its larger context, the line comes from a description of the privileged place that singers have deserved in Virgil's version of paradise, in book six of his epic, the Aeneid. And Orpheus himself, the Thracian priest with his long robes, keeps their rhythm strong with his lyre's seven ringing strings, plucking now with his fingers, now with his ivory plectrum. And faithful poets whose songs were fit for Apollo, those who enriched our lives with the newfound arts they forged, and those we remember well for the good they did humankind. Virgil, Aeneid 6. All that from the study, Why Dylan Matters, by Richard F. Thomas.
1: Last week, Monday, May 24,
0: 2021, marked the 80th birthday of Bob Dylan, and WVIA's George Graham grasped armloads of LPs from the music library to do it right to celebrate the occasion with the real deal the original 33 and a third LPs, and of course he featured more recent tunes too. We can certainly imagine that Stephen Whitaker has a shelf filled with LPs somewhere in his living or workspace, and that many of them are Dylan discs. His faculty photo on the University of Scranton website shows him in a corner of his office, flanked by shelves and shelves of books, and over his right shoulder hangs a handsome acoustic guitar He's a professor of the classics and Irish studies in the English department, so he clearly knows about Virgil and the muse and that seven-stringed lyre, but he's also been drawn to the rich, complex lines and lyrics of Bob Dylan for decades. And he wanted to share some of what he's discovered and been moved by with others. In 2020, he presented a course for the Shemmel Forum at the University of Scranton and here's the title and how it was described. Bob Dylan from Rolling Stone to Nobel Laureate, and he presented the course with Katherine Johnson, a senior student in the Special Jesuit Liberal Arts Honors Program. In celebration of the living Nobel Laureate in literature, the course was designed to explore examples of Dylan's work throughout his career, including his Nobel address. By way of sound recordings, screen footage, and participants' live voices, the class was designed to discuss musical traditions and influences on Dylan, his place among his contemporaries, and meaning in the songs. And Dr. Whitaker put it this way Participants will have some say in song selection and if they like, can perform in what we hope will be a free wheeling environment. We had a chance to engage Dr. Whitaker in a free wheeling conversation about the free wheeling Bob Dylan and we wanted to ask Dr. Whitaker to help us understand how it is that Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. First things first. Was he there in potencia in any sense in those early days when people were listening? Did anybody, maybe not predict the trajectory, but get a sense that this was somebody who was intriguing and a real artist?
1: Well, you know, there's two ways to think about that. One is the historical record, and one is the sort of personal recollection. It's always dangerous to talk to people of a certain age about their recollections of Dylan, but it's, say, 1963. I'm 13 years old. I'm junior high school. I've got this girl who I wanted to be a boyfriend-girlfriend with, and I came to her house, her brother had just come up from college, this was back in Texas, in North Texas, and uh, he was uh, registered at Texas A&M, and he said, you know, she was a singer and I was a singer, and, and, and you know, just in choruses and such, and he said, I've got something you guys have to listen to. And he pulls out these two albums, Bob Dylan and Free Whelan, and he says, you've just got to listen to this guy. And Texas A and M in those days, even even today, but in those days was a really conservative bastion. The male students all only were called cadets. But he plays these two records for us, and I'm from I'm a I'm a kid, and I I know Broadway. I know uh, you know way out west they've got a name and those kinds of tunes, and that's what I think. That's what I think lyrical ballads are all about. And he plays these albums for us, and. At first, I think it's, a, it's a, a joke because it's almost atonal, it's nasal, it doesn't have any of the sort of things you would expect of, say, the Broadway tradition. And he was absolutely enamored, and it was contagious. And by the end of two hours of, of listening to these two albums that he had picked up, he, he just said, this is it, guys. This is where music is going to go. needs hard.
0: It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain They're
1: gonna fall. And so I'd I'd say yeah, I, a whole lot of people at the time thought that this was where music was going to go. Partially because even at that moment, it was so informed by American folk and. Even by the great American songbook, the sort of narrative, uh, the narrative coherence of, of a lot of the songs, uh, just it was, it was clear that this was, a, this was an American voice sprung right out of the American soil. Right? Everything from Woody Guthrie to um, Hoagie Carmichael right in the very beginning.
0: So did you start collecting? What did you do? Did you want to get to a concert? How did you then take your, oh, wow, to the next level?
1: Well, I guess it caught on pretty fast because it was entangled with civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. It, it was a kind of a heartbeat or pulse of sort of the rising youth consciousness in the country. Uh, it was not much radio play at that point. I don't remember any, in fact, so it was all entirely discography. It was all, you know, did you get this album? It's not until, oh, mm, I'm going to say Highway 61, probably, in 1965 is, is when it started showing up everywhere. And, but still, um, not on the radio. You weren't, you weren't going to hear Like a Rolling Stone or Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues on the radio. And it's not until maybe 66 with Blonde on Blonde that you would start hearing occasional tunes of his. So it, it all had to be... And, and absent the internet, if you wanted to learn these songs, to perform, to cover these songs, you pretty much did it by ear. Now, fortunately, Dylan in those days was so musically straightforward, let's say, simple, that you could you could figure out how to play just about anything of his. And... Then with John Wesley Harding and Nashville and those things that came out in the late sixties, he 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 was on the radio everywhere because he was covering genres that had great radio representation. So you know both those two albums, you could hear on country or country and western type stations, uh, which are you know a lot different than they are now. Uh, that they really were. It wasn't it wasn't unusual to hear uh, Johnny Cash, and earlier. Country being being played on those stations, and they you very rarely hear them now. It's it's much more sort of polished stuff. It's good, but it's it's you know it's not at all the same. But it was it was really records, and you know I think anybody who is of a certain age will recall that when an album got dropped, maybe you could find a late night FM station that would play it through. But even say by the time I was in Austin, Texas, in 1968, going to, going to school. KUTFM and stations like that, uh, which were early, you know, some of the earliest uh, ad- adopters of uh, uh, NPR and things like that, uh, they would have late night programs and they would just put the new album on, and that's they would have gotten it first, and that's how you would hear it, and then and you would try to find somebody that had managed to buy it somewhere.
0: And was there a galvanizing force that if you knew Dylan and you liked Dylan? That it said something about who you were and how you at that time viewed the world
1: well sure, but uh, yes and no, but uh, the Dylan has been a flashpoint from the very beginning, and so uh, for a while he was the voice of the folk music and and then you know he for the second act, he picked up the electric and 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 lost two- thirds of his audience and and he did he's done that. Identifiably a dozen times in his career, where he's just scraped off um, what you would have assumed was his audience—those people who culturally identified with him—and and, you know, I'm a my my areas are classics and Irish studies, and and you can see this in in lyric poets all the way back. I mean, somebody like William Butler Yeats. Now, somebody says, "Do you like Yeats?" And you you sort of just have to say, "Well, which which Yeats?" Because you know he he was a romantic lyric poet to begin with, and then he felt trapped by it, and he repeatedly through his career sort of threw his audience under the bus and changed. I'm talking about Yeats now, and changed what he was doing, changed his idiom, changed his style, changed the changed the people that he was paying attention to, and out out of which tradition he was writing. And Dylan was the same way, and so by say 1968, 1969. Which were, you know, uh, peak of the war and um summer of love and all that kind of stuff. Dylan was already a hugely controversial figure. was he um was he a a rock star? was he a singer-songwriter was he the spokesman of a generation of of sort of disaffected youth was he the spokesman of the anti-war movement and these are these things aren't really coherent with each other they're they're different sort of uh, agendas and and when something like Nashville skyline or something like that comes out which is just a tremendously romantic album and you know Dylan is a Dylan is a mime and he's always absorbed everything around him. And frankly, that's what great lyric poets do. But as a consequence, you can feel like he's betrayed you because you identified the thing that you imprinted on like a little duck as, as the essence of Dylan, the true Dylan. And then everything else is, is you know a betrayal or a, or a, a change of focus. I mean, I think it's not till it's probably not till 1975, till Blood on the Tracks, when pretty much everybody comes together on Dylan. And by that time, you know, the the war is as good as done, and in, in it, it's just a masterpiece on anybody's list. Uh, and it's got um, cuts like uh, well, the title got uh, Blood on the Tracks and Buckets of Rain and Simple Twist of Fate and tangled up in blue and you're gonna make me lonesome when you go and it it's just this incredible list of songs uh, every every one of which is just right out of the park
0: love go by my door it's never been this close before never been so easy or so slow i've been shooting in the dark too long when something's not right it's wrong you're gonna make me loads when you go dragging clouds so high above i've only known careless love it always has hit me from below
1: So direct. You're make the when you go. And that's, it's so powerful, it's so overwhelming, a mastery of all the things he's done up to that point, and all these traditions that, say, 12 or 13 years ago, people saw, sort of, uh, portended in his, in his 1962, 1963 releases, that it, caused a kind of a peace across the camps. That Here, here he was, and he was not, and I'm, I'm going to put quotes around the word just, he was not just a this poet or that poet, a war poet or, or a civil rights poet or revival of the American songbook poet or an American folk poet or any of those things. And He was just understood to be, and that's the point at which people started saying things like, well, he's a national treasure which is, you know, as you know, is one of the things you say about an artist when when you realize that almost anything you say in praise of them is going to seem fatuous in the long run.
0: Is there a sense that these are songs that the impact of the voice that he delivers mm-hmm. these words with how much of what we experience as the power of Dylan, the artist, has to do with his delivery—the oral nature of what he's up to, the music, and all of a piece?
1: That's a that's a great question in so many ways. Um, first of all, if you you know there there are the albums, that, including uh, uh collaborations, that are so highly produced and and atmospheric and completely controlled. And that's one Dylan sound. But then if you go on YouTube and you look for concert releases, especially concerts in the 90s and the and the aughts, you find Dylan, the, the band will be playing the tune. But when a, when you get to what is the first of each verse, which will be, you know, the verse can mean the set of lines that compose the next bit of the song, but it can also mean the set of Notes that compose the ne- the next bit of the song. Very often, Dylan will just dump all the lines into about a third of the music, and it, it's almost like he's just sort of slotting the lines in. And I don't mean that in a pejorative. It's it's a very clear stylistic choice, and it's disconcerting if you know the tunes as they're recorded, uh, and he's just not. He's just not interested in covering himself in the way you know some of my Willie Nelson, for example, is one of my all-time favorites. I mean you know, I, I saw him play in Austin when I was a kid. and he covers himself and he does it and it could be the album. but Dylan has Dylan's idea of, of a performance is is really different. and I mean the, the, there are things like Hurricane, which when once the the case was reviewed, he stopped playing it, and people kept asking for it. And he he, he said, oh, "I don't I don't want to. There's no point in playing it anymore. It's done." And by the same token, it seems like more than anything, he thought he was a performer. And there are there are records of people saying of him in in notes in the archives of people saying to him, "Well, well, you haven't written any songs this year," and him saying, "Well, um, I've already got too much material that I want to do right now." And in that way, and I know this is going to drive people crazy, he's like Shakespeare. He's producing stuff to perform. And Shakespeare didn't write plays. He produced scripts that were part of the production of a performance. And um, there are times when Dylan just thought, thought, oh, I've got plenty of music, I've got too much music, and seems to have dialed it back. But then there are other times when, I mean, some of the people that he worked with for for album production basically just sat down with him, and and then he would just start writing tunes. And there are there are stories that you know come out of the New Orleans productions where somebody says, "Well, you know, that's really cool, but it's only a fragment. And and this is you know this is the grown-up Dylan. This is not a this is this is a middle-aged Dylan going over and sitting in the corner by himself and coming back an hour later with three new songs. And again, another comparison, this is like, uh, this is like Taylor Swift. And Taylor Swift, uh, who is you know just a fabulous musician, writes songs every time she turns them around. And, and you can say, well, a lot of them are mediocre, but her, her total output is so vast that if every tenth song is a winner, and that's about the ratio, I would say, then that makes her one of the most productive and successful lyricists out there. Um, and he's just a kind of a, a Vesuvius when when called upon, and he seems to be able to just do it at any point. Catherine uh, oh, Johnson, who's a local uh, musician, spectacular young mu- musician, and I decided to do this shemmel with the bouquet of uh, Sandra Myers, the wonderful Sandra Myers, uh, on Dylan for the community. And... Part of my motivation was, of course, the Nobel Prize. And uh, when the Nobel Prize was, was announced in 2016, it's going to Bob Dylan. This goes to your question of what's the difference between words on a page and performance? The response was, was explosive. And there were certain people who just thought, yes, it's about time. And then there were tons and tons of serious literary types of which I'm you know, supposed to be one who were scandalized at the idea that, that this this pop singer would be given the Nobel Prize. Now, for me, my real area as a scholar is James Joyce, and James Joyce never got the Nobel Prize, so I don't really consider it very important, because if Joyce didn't get it, uh, that probably means that Shakespeare wouldn't have gotten it either were we to bring him forward four centuries. But I was at a conference at a, in, in Paris, and I went to a talk at the Sorbonne given by Adam Gopnik who writes for the New Yorker and in my opinion he's the best writer at the New Yorker now and has been for a decade he's just he's just unbelievably fine and and he he was giving a talk at the Sorbonne and he um he got talking about Philip Roth now Philip Roth is is this this towering American fiction writer I mean he's he's deceased now of course but who everybody kept waiting for uh, the Nobel Prize Committee to to give him the prize. And he himself was was a bit scandalized. He wasn't troubled by self-doubt. Scandalized that they hadn't given him the award. And Gopnik tells this story, and it's back in 2016, about, I guess, a year and a half before Roth died. And uh, Roth had, you know, all kinds of heart problems, and so was hospitalized very frequently in the last couple of years of his life. Were really rugged. And Gopnik was a, a great admirer and friend of Roth. And, and as Roth's life wound down, they got to be better and better friends. And Gopnik said that he was listening to the radio one day before going down to the hospital to visit Roth. And he heard that Bob Dylan had gotten the Nobel Prize, and he said he just, his heart froze. He thought, how am I going to go down there and and tell Philip Roth that Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize? But, you know, he was going to go down, and so he, he braced himself and walked in the room, and he said, Roth looked up from the newspaper and said, Adam, have you heard? I'm going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh! <laughs> and this was a you know a huge relief. I mean, it just you know a hilarious story, but a huge relief because it meant that he already had heard it. But that's sort of like the scandal. That's that that epitomizes the scandal that a lot of people in literary circles felt. And so, what prompted us, what prompted Catherine Johnson and myself to put this thing together was. To say, okay, uh, we both love the music, we both play the music, she's a great musician, and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a great appreciator of, of good musicians. So we, we're going to put together a band, and I was going to present sort of the, the scholarly background on all this stuff uh, for a group of people and to try to assess what it means for somebody who's a rock and roller to get the Nobel Prize. And that caused me both to look at his progress as a musician, which goes from being pretty simple to very quickly becoming more and more sophisticated, but also to look at his life as a maker of word structures, of lyric poems. And when you look at him that way, you see he's constantly evolving musically, but he's also so so capable of reproducing what almost anybody else is doing and appropriating it and transforming it himself. And this is almost the hallmark of, of great writers,
0: uh, especially
1: lyric poets. Lyric, lyric poetry is always a tricky category anyway because, you know, novelists and playwrights want to think that they're doing the serious work when, in fact, the, the lyric poets deserve to be just as, as, as richly acknowledged. Hey, Mr. Tango Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there's no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tango Man, play a song for me. In the jingle, jangle morning, I come find.
0: Dr. Stephen Whittaker, professor in the Department of English and Theatre at the University of Scranton, focusing on classics and Irish studies, speaking with us about singer-songwriter Bob Dylan to mark Dylan's 80th birthday on May 24th, 2021. This is part one of a two-part conversation in which Dr. Whitaker helps us understand how it is that Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. And tomorrow, we'll hear Dr. Whitaker talking about Bob Dylan, the performer, the song and dance man, Mr. Tambourine Man. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleeping. For more information on Dr. Whittaker, check the University of Scranton website, scranton.edu, scranton.edu. And it's Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and Whittaker with two Ts, W-H-I-T-T-A-K-E-R.
1: Take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship